it always starts with like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, reluctantly, I'm a professional skier. And then they're like, oh, sweet, what sport do you do? And then it starts with that. And then the next question is, oh, did you go to the Olympics? And like, In the jumping world, when we tell you that suit colors matter, most people are like, you're crazy. That was one of the best tactical races I've ever skied in my career. It shocks me that I've been able to do as many things, you know, win a King's Cup, win a World Cup, win a medal at a World Championships and, and go to the Olympics. Like, the, those are things that you don't get the opportunity to do every day. And for me, they're extremely humbling to know that, holy cow, I worked so hard and, and here it is paying off. And I'm really excited to be a dad. I think that's the first yeah. and foremost thing. I think I um, was more ready than I ever anticipated I was. I may have to edit this a little bit because yeah. I'm going to sound like a moron. Welcome to 21 Pairs of Shoes, a Steamboat Sports and Adventure podcast. I'm Joel Richenberger, sports editor of the Steamboat Pilot and Today newspaper in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Nordic Combined is a big deal here in Steamboat. Which is funny because as far as I can tell, it's not a big deal anywhere else, at least not in the United States. Nordic Combined is an Olympic sport where athletes first ski jump, then compete in a cross-country ski race, and Steamboat has long produced and trained Americans Olympians in the sport. Three of the four Nordic Combined athletes who accounted for one gold and three silver medals at the 2010 Olympics had deep ties to Steamboat, and all four who made the 2014 Winter Olympic team had those ties as well. Brian Fletcher, today's guest, was one of those on the 2014 team. Brian's 30 years old and he's been competing on the World Cup circuit since 2009. He won a World Cup event, the King's Cup, in Oslo, Norway in 2012 and was a part of a bronze medal winning relay team at the 2013 World Championships, a pretty big deal for the sport in the United States. Brian now lives in Park City, training with the team, but he makes time to come back to Steamboat on a pretty regular basis, and he was here over the 4th of July for a camp the team comes to every summer. Anyway, Brian was in town for that event and took the time to sit down with us for our podcast. Brian's a guy who's dedicated his life to his sport, but he's never struck me as a guy obsessed with it, if that makes any sense. Brian's a survivor of childhood cancer. Skiing was one of the things that helped him feel normal again once he started to feel better, and that experience is still very much with him. He started a charity, CC Thrive, to help kids recovering from cancer, kids looking for mentors to show them what their life can be. So consider that Brian's finishing school working side jobs to help pay the bills, and, oh yeah, training for the Olympics. And it's amazing he finds the time to co-found a charity. On top of that, his wife is expecting their first child this fall. Needless to say, he's a busy guy, and we were thrilled to be able to spend an hour with him. We start out talking about his most recent winter and some of Brian's ups and downs as a competitor. We touch on his experience of the 2014 Winter Olympics and life ever after as an Olympian, Eventually, we start talking about equipment and the ways in which the world's best try to bend the rules. And we talk about how Brian claims different colors, colors, not fabrics, of suits jumpers wear offer different performance. I can't shake the feeling of being pranked, but he does make a pretty compelling case, so I guess I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, please enjoy and thanks for listening. Tell a friend. Welcome to the podcast. The podcast is called 21 Pairs of Shoes, which we named it that because... Uh, we spent a little while compiling how many different pairs of shoes you need in Steamboat Springs to, to, to participate in all the different activities. So, And uh, Nordic Nordic ski shoes or mm-hmm. ski boots are def, definitely on our list. And we're here with Brian Fletcher, who is uh, a longtime member of the U.S. Nordic Combined Ski Team, 2014 Winter Olympian, and uh, uh, born and raised in Steamboat Springs. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Looking back at the last competitive season, how did you come away feeling about, about the 2015-16 winter? Last season was uh, not the season that I'd hoped for. You ended up um, ranked, ranked 20th, I think, at yeah, the end? Yeah, 20th in, in the overall World Cup list. And, um, you know, for me, I had bigger goals and expectations that I was trying to meet. And um, I started out the season well and, and typical, uh, you know, I guess typical fashion for me, I got a little bit too critical and wanted it a little bit too much. So just, instead of just trusting what you know I was doing and, and the preparation that I'd done leading into the season, I tried a little bit harder to reach that next level. And in doing so, uh, broke it all down. And I think that that's where my trouble came from. And once you do that, it's really hard to recover as you go through the season. I mean, as you can imagine, it's comp after comp after comp with no training 
uh, kind of once you get into that bad habit, it's really hard to break. What's a bad habit that comes about from trying too hard? Um, I think the biggest one is psychologically. You know, mentally you're in this competition mindset and you start the self-doubt cycle or maybe I should do this instead of this. And you lose that decisiveness, that clear plan of action that you need in competition. So if you can imagine when things are going well, you're not thinking about anything other than what you want to do or what you need to do. It's very simple and easy and you're very set and decisive in that path. When things start to go bad or when you start to question what you're doing, you really start to break it down and you're like, well, maybe I should, you know, in jumping terms, increase my shin angle a little bit and, or maybe I should get a little bit more aggressive or jump less aggressive or maybe I should do this. And all of a sudden you have all these thoughts rushing through your head and you can't pick or decide on anything and you just react to the situation. And um, I think that's the tough thing is you get into that, that routine of doing that and despite your best efforts, it's very hard to break out of that and just let things flow and, and get back into that, that positive state you were in before. Are you thinking that as you're hurtling down the jump at, at 100 or whatever miles an hour? Yeah. Or, or uh, you know, is, is that going through your head before you start? Or when, when, is, when are these kind of thoughts clouding your... All of the above. I think um, when, things, when you're struggling a little bit, those, those thoughts are rushing to you not only while you're getting ready to jump, it's in the hotel room, it's on the bus ride there. It can be, you know you could be totally fine until you get on the jump and then they hit you. That's the thing is it's very hard to pinpoint when uh, you're going to start that routine again. And you can do like last year, I did a lot of preparation to uh, me personally help myself be in a stronger mental state going into the competition. But um, you know, sometimes it just, your mind wanders naturally and you'll end up in this different state. But I think you know, in looking back, every athlete's going to have years like that. And, and no matter if you're the best or the worst, you need to learn from those experiences and, and know. And the only way you're going to learn from them is by going through them. Uh, there's no one else in the world that can tell you how to navigate those situations. What was, what was your best day from this last season? Um, well, I had a couple good days. I think Seyfeld, uh, the Nordic Combined Triple, which is our biggest event of the year, I had some really good in, finishes In Austria, there. right? Yeah, in Austria. Um, really great finishes there and was happy with uh, the way I jumped you know made some big strides there from the previous weekend and also you know felt really good about my cross country there and uh, if it wasn't for just a little bit of bad luck you know I got tangled up in one of the cross country races and stuff I mean I was fighting for the podium so I think that was uh, that was some positive uh, things that came out of last season Um, you know a couple good results there and also, you know, it was a really challenging year. Otherwise, there wasn't many good results. But the good thing that happened was I got to, you know, enjoy. I knew things weren't going well in the hills, so I got to enjoy the countries I was in. I mean, that was my distraction was just, you know what, you know, screw Nordic combined for once. I'm going to go out and go for a walk in Norway. Like, see what's up. Go check out Trondheim. Do that kind of stuff. I think that was kind of the highlight of my season last year was finding a way to be happy within, you know, bad performance. For, for all this traveling you do, do, do you spend much time being a tourist like that? We don't get much time to be a tourist. I mean, yeah. we, you, you know, go over to the most amazing places in the world. Yeah, exactly. Over the years, we've, you know, gotten opportunities, free day here, free day there to, you know, and we've been to the location several times where we've been able to go explore or do something. But um, as you can imagine, I mean, every single day of the week is filled up with a training regimen or something that we have to do. And um, yeah, then it's the weekend comes and it's competition. So, um, and then we're on to the next place. So it's pretty jam packed and it's tough to be over there and see some of these huge mountains where you just want to go ski or climb or do whatever and know that the best thing you can do is sit in your bed in the hotel room. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you've had, I mean, you mentioned a couple of good days from this season and certainly with the, the year prior, you, you were, you know, a whisker away from a podium at the world championships and, and you've won World Cups in the past. When you look back at some of those, some of the best days you've had competitively, you're talking about kind of again that 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 clouded mind. When you look back on on those days, was it like that, or on those days was it magically clear? Were those some of the clearest days you've had, or or did you have that same sense on those days too? It just worked out better. It's a little bit of a mix, but I would say more so than not, you have a clear mind. You're decisive. You know what you need to do. 
the process is clear to get the result that you want. And I think it should be noted that the result is not the focus of the situation. It's it's obviously a result of you doing the process well. And um, so on those days, it's, you know, you know what you need to do uh, step by step all the way down the hill and it just flows naturally and you do it. And I think um, it's, it's harder to get to those states, but once you're there, um, especially when you get to you know, my status on the team or my, uh, I guess, veteran status on the team um, and my experience, you learn to enjoy when you're in that state of mind a lot more because you just know things are going to take care of themselves. You've got it all dialed and that's, that's fun. That's what's, that's what competition's all about is uh, achieving that status. But it's not, it's, it's not as easy. It's certainly not easy to get there. No, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of days of, you know, really actually fighting through a lot of the the monotony of it i mean it's funny because when you're done with training in the summertime it's really easy to check out and do this you know whatever you want to do and that's the state you're trying to be in it's just your natural state but it's very hard to get there forcibly so you you have to play some tricks on yourself and and do that kind of stuff and when when the technical aspect clicks your body and your mind goes there naturally, which is the important thing. I wouldn't have ever imagined, I mean, just, just b- b- before I got into talking to Olympians occasionally for a living, <laughs> I wouldn't have ever imagined it being so complicated. I mean, when, when you were growing up and just dipping your toe in the sport, did you, did you have any idea that? No, and I, I don't think uh, any athlete should ever have an idea when they're at that age. I think, you know, we as athletes can make it as complicated as we want it to be. Um, and, and rightfully so, you're going to be analytical. You're going to look for anything you can do to get an edge. But every time you do that, you're also putting yourself more at risk in terms of, you know, how many things can go wrong or how many things you ha- your mind has to focus on. And um, the best athletes are the, one who, are the ones who keep it simple. And I think that that's an important thing to keep always in the back of your head is, you know, keep it simple, keep it simple. And, and certainly when I do my best, it's, it's usually after a season like last year where I hit rock bottom and I just go for, okay, maybe I'm not going to try and win, but I can be top 10 or whatever it is. And then you surprise yourself and you come out and you come away with podiums and victories. So, uh, keeping it simple is key. Um, what does, uh, you, you mentioned, you mentioned your summer workouts. We've talked about that a little bit, but what, what does your what does your summer workouts look like? Um, it varies quite a bit, but typically, you know, this time of year we just finished our big endurance base. So the last uh, about two months have been spent um, with endurance. That I think our biggest hours was eight hours a day on the bike or Whew. roller skiing or wow, something yeah. like that. So as you can imagine, it's tiring. Um, we have our biggest week is about 30 hours of endurance and uh, on top of that we'll also have weight training um, and plyometric training that we're doing with that so the big bulk of the training is done while we're not on the jump hill uh, in terms of endurance which is key because that builds a base and now we can start working on speed and those kinds of things so now we're kind of shifting into a more jumping focused phase of training where we're going to be doing more on the hill jump training, more plyometrics weight training, and scaling back the endurance training a little bit to and focusing on a little bit more speed in our training. Um, as we progress into the fall, we'll kind of repeat those cycles a little bit um, and modify them, and then you know work towards a peak into the season. Um, but even still, right now when we're scaling it back, as you can imagine, we're picking up training uh, on the hill or wherever else. So. Um, it may not be eight hours a day, but we're certainly doing two to three sessions a day of uh, very focused training. Are you, are you better now than you were this time last year? Um, I think I'm about on par. I think last year my summer preparation was really good going into the season. And um, this year I think I've made some really positive changes very quickly, especially for how little time we've spent on the hill. So I'm, I'm really excited to kind of work into the next uh, phase of jumping and and start to get a little bit more analytical on it um but i i'm very happy with where i'm at now and i think that uh, i'll continue to see some good progress there it's crazy to me that you're just it's just like a, a constant process of rebuilding yeah always and and it should be i think that uh 
a lot of athletes, I was actually talking about this last night at a barbecue, which is funny, but uh, I think a lot of athletes, they come out of their last season and they're like, you know what, I'm going to hold this level and I'm going to build from here and, and do all this stuff. And then they end up at the next season tired, way off the level that they're hoping to be at and no hope of achieving a high performance. So I think it's key to, after a season, you decompress, you let your body recover, um, you know, two to three weeks of time off, and then you start rebuilding. And you're gonna lose fitness and you're gonna lose, you know, a lot of things, but um, in order for you to build, you know, new uh, strong muscle and, and new energy and freshness that you, in fitness, you need to take that break. And so it is always, breaking down and rebuilding, um, it's a never-ending process. Nordic combines one of those sports where uh, it's its tough to be a professional at um, yeah. financially. How do you, and I know you've done a number of different things. I think I saw a couple weeks ago you were driving an Uber. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How's that going? Uber didn't pan out, unfortunately. No? no. <laughs> it was a short-lived uh, Yeah, stint, sh- huh? very short-lived. Um, I think I worked the first day for like two and a half hours and made 20 bucks, and then I went back and worked for another hour and a half another day and made like five bucks. Um, <laughs> it was tough to, kind of tough to get into the thing and, and not really the time uh, commitment that I was hoping it'd be. I hoped it was a little bit easier money, but um, you know, it, it, it was always, yeah, we we're always looking for new things. Like I said, we're training a lot during the week. We're pretty much working full-time job just doing training alone. Um, not to mention I'm in school halftime. I think most of the other athletes are in school halftime. Um, you know, to get degrees. So when we finish our career in sport, we can enter the working world just like anybody else would. And um, so I think that's a that's a priority is training in school for a lot of athletes, and then on top of that, work. And um, it's very hard. I, I've worked in restaurants for a number of years, where working from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. and rushing home, trying to get in bed, trying to recover for the next day, and being on your feet is not ideal. So. Um, tried to get out of that the last couple of years and, and try and find some alternative means of, uh, of earning income and to pay for the sport. And um, unfortunately, it's not easy. There's just not a lot of jobs that can work with their schedule. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. They we're always out there looking. Are you waiting tables this summer? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah we'll have to be, especially coming into the fall. And I think that... Um, you know, in addition to that, just doing any other odds and ends work, you know, uh, luckily, you know, I can do some appearance work and, and that kind of stuff where I can share my story with, uh, you know, com- companies and corporations that, uh, you know, can learn from our team strategy. And on top of that, uh, on top of that, the, the, it doesn't leave any time to spend with family, which which is growing. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, so family's growing. Uh, my wife and I are expecting a baby in September, so um, that's exciting. And and on top of that, uh, we we finally just bought a house, so we're excited about oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, this spring has been crazy. With we we got a really nice house and um, did some remodel projects to get it going, and um, then. Um, now we're expecting the baby. So she's, in addition to that, she's working full time because um, she's the breadwinner of the she family. Do? She's a uh, works in labor and delivery. She's a okay. midwife basically. Great, yeah. um, right now she's doing a little bit more education um, and education work, which is a really cool opportunity for her. And um, so yeah, she works full time, and I do the Nordic combined full time. And uh, so without her, I wouldn't be doing this. So yeah, it's a it's a challenge and. Uh, definitely not easy for the family. That can that can be a big time. I mean, starting a family can be a big time game changer for, obviously for for everybody. Yeah. Um, how, how do you see that kind of affecting you? Well, I affecting think, the sports side of you. I think I'm I'm really excited to be a dad. I think that's the first yeah. and foremost thing. I think um, was more ready than I ever anticipated I was. But uh, how do you I, mean that? By the way, you more ready than you ever anticipated. I think you know there's. When you think about having kids when you're younger, it's kind of like a, a situation where you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm not there financially or I'm not there you know, mentally or you know, all those little things play in. But then uh, in hindsight now that we are having a kid, it's kind of like, no, you are ready. It, it just, you're not gonna know it until it happens. And I think that everybody gets caught up in that situation where they're like, no, it's not the right phase in my life or whatever. And sometimes it's not, but more often than not, it's just you, not accepting that you're ready for that situation and 
now that you know we're there and we're ready you know I'm, I'm super excited and I and I think that uh, you know I've been ready for this for a while um, do you think it'll does it make it tougher I mean it's kind of make it tough to go to Europe yeah it's gonna be really hard I mean imagine this winter I'm gonna be traveling full-time obviously trying to get the results that I can this year leading into world championships and then again the Olympics and then, unfortunately, I'm going to have a wife, a kid, and a dog at home, and she's going to be trying to work full time. So that's going to be a challenge, and and we're not really sure how that's going to play out. You know, uh, it's definitely going to be a lot of flying by the seat of our pants, and uh, I'll have to probably sacrifice a competition or two to come home and give her a break. And she's probably going to want to kill me after the season, and when I'm gone for five weeks at a time, and. She's at home taking care of the kid and the dog. So uh, it's going to be a challenge, and and I'm looking forward to that challenge, but I'm also definitely nervous about, you know, how it will affect my sport and performance. Um, I know you guys usually take a, a fall trip to Europe as well. Do you, will you do that this year? Yeah, I've put all my training plans on, uh, in terms of camps, on hold until October. Um, and then if everything – goes well with the delivery and the baby and stuff, then I my most important camp and the one I put the most priority on is in October. So then I would go over for two weeks and have a really highly focused and, and intense camp in Europe and, um, you know, pick up my equipment, you know, meet with the sponsors, that kind of stuff, and get ready for the season. And that would be my final preparation. And I think that what allows me to do that is – you know, I've been on the team now almost 10 years and, and been wow. on the World Cup circuit <laughs> for, I think, eight of those or so. So I think that it's uh, I, I got to trust that I know where I need to be going into the season and just knowing that it's OK to miss some of those camps and then, you know, everything will work out. So I, I think that's a good good plan. Are you just playing devil's advocate here? I mean, can you be as successful as you want to be? By and miss those camps. We were talking. You're talking. So. About, we're talking about taking the next step and stuff. Um, well, certainly, the, certainly not at a young kid's age. I think yeah. that it, you need those camps and you need to know how to travel, how to handle yourself in those situations. Um, I think that makes it extremely difficult if you don't know uh, or haven't had the experience in that situation. But I mean, for me, it'll it'll very much be a challenge and. Certainly, I think the biggest challenge will be mentally, you know, trusting that you're well enough prepared. But uh, physically, I know that I can prepare enough here and be on the ball enough to be competitive and even, you know, fighting for top results uh, this season with that. Um, I think the biggest outlier is whether or not we get a, a baby that sleeps at night or not. You yeah. know? <laughs> well, good luck on that. Thanks. Does it, does, does it change your... Does it change your career motivation at all? Do you think, boy, two more years to the next Olympics, that's a long time. Um, maybe maybe I should be an accountant or whatever. <laughs> or whatever whatever it is, whatever it is you might have in mind for next. Does it does it push that timeline up more? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I've been looking at that pretty extensively and, and obviously picked up schooling a little bit more. Uh, just stacking more on my plate. And I think that it's challenging and it's probably not ideal. But it's also, you know that you're preparing for life after sport. And um, for me, I think that the next two years are going to fly by. Like I was already looking at it when we started training this spring and was like, holy crap, we only have 18 months until the Olympics, like less than 18 months now. And that goes by so quick, uh, especially when you're just training head down every day. So um, I think that you know, for me, it's like I only got two years left. You know, if I decide to retire after South Korea, then um, it's going to fly by. So it's making sure that I'm putting 100% into the now and the here. And before I know it, it'll be the next Olympics. And then who knows what will happen. <laughs> All chaos will break loose. What, uh, what would it mean for you to make another Olympics? Uh, it'd be awesome. I think that uh, making another Olympics would be great. It would, you know, add that I could be a two-time Olympian, which would be a fantastic thing. But more so, I just am looking for a little bit better results at the next Olympics. I think Sochi, we were really close, and, and unfortunately, it just didn't pan out and wasn't our days on uh, any of the days. And, um, you know, maybe we tried too hard. Maybe we did some preparation wrong. But um, I think that going into the next Olympics, I know I can improve on that, and I know that um, I'm looking forward to 
another opportunity to do that. So, and also just enjoying the moment. I think in your first Olympics, it's hard to enjoy the thing. You, you think about performance and stuff, and it just takes a, uh, the second one for you just to be able to enjoy the whole process of it. You were, you were 26th and 22nd in the individual events and 6th in the team. You mentioned that it wasn't quite there. When you, when you look back at that, what, what wasn't quite there in Sochi? Jumping, for sure. I think, yeah. you know, we tried so hard that summer to get the next level up in jumping. And as we saw in 2013, we were right there. I mean, we were jumping to put ourselves in contention in, in the World Championships and the World Cups and all that stuff. And I think that um, we just took a risk and we tried to reach a, another level in the jumping. And unfortunately, it didn't pan out and we kind of actually fell behind a little bit. And I think that... Um, you know, you got to go for it. I mean, it, in hindsight, it's not like I regret that decision or anything. We had to we had to give it everything we got. I mean, winning a medal is not easy, and you have to have a career day. So I think that we gave it everything we got. It didn't pan out, but, um, you know, cross-country-wise, we did well. The components were there. I mean, we're, we, I mean, we easily could have won medals there, just to, the luck wasn't on our side. So... Um, you know, going back to the next one, hopefully the luck will be a little more on our side. Do you feel like, I mean, now, you know, two years or a year and a half removed from that, do you feel like, are you, are you getting closer to those answers in the jumping? Because it feels like that's kind of been the, the constant question. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the sport has changed quite a bit in terms of the level of competitiveness. I think that there's a lot more athletes that are achieving really high levels and also the margin for error is getting smaller and smaller with every year. Um, so it, I think as when I look back at it now, you know, there's been a lot of trial and error since then, trying to find how to reach that next level. And it's typically reached just up to below it and then, you know, can't quite get there and break it all down and you start all over. And, and like you said, it's a rebuilding process always. Um, you got to have a strong foundation to, you know, build a tall building. So that's, uh, that's what we're focusing on. And, and I really do feel that this year, we're on the right track already. I think our foundation is really good. The energy on the team is back to, you know, really positive, uh, insightful, and hungry young guys. And I think that uh, I see a lot of potential moving into the next two years. Could you could could you live the rest of your life comfortable with your best result at the Olympics being twenty second? Because that's really pretty awesome. I yeah. Mean, no. Absolutely. Grand, you, you take a step back and you look look. I compete in the Olympics, place twenty second. That's it's not a very rough life. No. <laughs> could, 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 can you can you realize that now, or could you realize that in time? Do you think? I think yeah. I'm, I'm one of the lucky athletes. Uh, I think I, I say lucky because I think it's a lucky skill to have. But um, I I look at everything that I've accomplished in this sport as a blessing and almost like just a, you know it shocks me that I've been able to do as many things. You know, win a King's Cup, win a World Cup, win. A medal at a world championships and and go to the olympics like the, those are things that you don't get the opportunity to do every day and for me they're extremely humbling to know that holy cow i worked so hard and and here it is paying off and i think i've talked about it a little bit before in, in some aspects but i mean one of those days makes 20 years of work and training and getting up at 5 a.m or doing this doing that totally worth it you forget about it all and um, that's that's why we're out there, and it's so humbling to know that you can achieve those things, or that you were even ranked among one of the best athletes out there. Uh, it's just cool. Does it feel different to be at an Olympics? I mean, you you compete against those same guys, you know, twenty times a year. Does it feel different at an Olympics? Yeah, sometimes it does, just because there's so many more media uh, personnel there. There's so yeah, many. Yeah, like me. Yeah, yeah. You get your hometown newspaper there, <laughs> which right. is awesome. Um, no, I think it's it's just different because um, it, it's just a new environment, and no matter how much you try and make it the same as every single World Cup, it's not. So I think it's important not to try to make it the same. Just accept it for what it is and have fun and roll with the situation. And I think that. Um, like we were talking about, I think when you go into an Olympics, especially your first one, you're going to try and control the situation. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. It's it's just let the situation happen. The work's done and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So it's um, that's kind of the way I look at it now. 
Did you uh, did did you have fun at the Olympics? Oh yeah, yeah, I had yeah. a blast. I mean, it's still the Olympics. It's still a very cool experience, and you're in some ways, no matter how you place, you're still looking there, going like, I did this, I accomplished this, I was named the team, and and that's a relief in itself. And um, typically for me, I've performed better at the bigger events because I don't have expectations. I think with Sochi, I had expectations, and um, yeah. That, that was part of the problem. But I, I'm looking forward to the next one because I've seen how those expectations can ruin it. And, you know, in the next one I know that I'm just going to have fun and fly by the seat of my pants, you know? Yeah, you walked in the opening ceremonies. What, what was that like? That was intense. That was probably the coolest moment of the Olympics. When you walk in, you're under the stage, you know, you walk out, and it's just this massive building full of people, all these lights going off, all these people cheering. And it, it was like almost surreal because it was quiet when we walked in, or it seemed quiet. And then it, you know, we walked a hundred yards closer to the stands, and you could really then feel the energy. It was like a wave of sound that hit you, and it's just such a big building, and there's so many people in there that it was like it, you just didn't feel it until all of a sudden you got like right up close to it, and it was really intense. But the you know, it's an, it's an interesting emotional experience, too, because on one hand, it's the start of the games. On the other hand, you just finished a huge journey to get there. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a relief. It's kind of excitement. It's kind of nerves. It's all those emotions wrapped into one thing. And as you're walking around, you just can't help but look at all the other people's faces and from the fans to the other athletes, and, and you can see just the variations and emotions all yeah. the way as you look through the crowd it's cool is it a life-changing thing to be able to call yourself an olympian um i think so i mean certainly it's it's something that no one can ever take away from you which is cool um so i think it's that, not former olympian i've been yeah it's one of the things i've very much learned since i moved to steamboat is yeah. no one's a former olympian it's, yeah no one's a former <laughs> olympian you're always an olympian and i think that's something cool that you know, you get to leave with for the rest of your life. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's funny because I always go back and forth. Like, people ask me what I do, and I'm, I'm either shy and I don't really tell them or don't give them the full situation. Yeah. Or sometimes, you know, you'll be in a good mood and you'll tell them what you do. And, and I think that's, you know, a cool, cool thing to have in your back pocket. Yeah. Well, how, how do you work the Olympics into a conversation? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it usually just comes up. I think – it always starts with like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, reluctantly, I'm a professional skier. And then they're like, oh, sweet, what sport do you do? And then it starts with that. And then the next question is, oh, did you go to the Olympics? And I'm like, yes, I went to the Olympics. And then it's like, oh, and the whole conversation opens up, you know. Um, so it's kind of a, an interesting thing. Was it kind of a, was, was it tough for all those years where you had to say no? Um, a little bit. I think it, you know, it was disappointing. Um, you know, to look at that situation and, and be like, I maybe could have done this or that differently, um, or maybe that I should have been chosen or not. But uh, in hindsight, you know, I think it was one of the best wake-up calls that I had had. To not uh, make it in 2010? Yeah. I think if I'd made it... injured, weren't you? Yeah, I was injured. I had an ankle injury and, and um, you know, hadn't been skiing at the level that I had hoped. And I think that, the, you know, it's tough when you're in that situation because you really want it, but... You know, for me, it was a good routine uh, wake-up call where it was like, okay, I need to change some things in my training. I need to get better at this and that. And so that's what I did. Um, what, take me back to that. Why was it – I mean, obviously it was the injury, but was it – you certainly saw more more of a message there than just that, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that uh, when you miss a team like that, you, you go and reflect on what you've been through. Um, and what you need to do, and, and for me it was like, well, am I gonna keep skiing after this? Do I wanna go for another Olympics? Um, is it worth it? Can I reach the top of the sport? You know, that kind of stuff. And I think luckily I had been to a level where I had a taste that I could be at the top of the sport. Um, but ultimately it was like, okay, there's another world championships. The following year I got some great teammates that are gonna do, be really well. Maybe I can get a medal at the world championships. So, that was like the motivating factor. So I broke everything down, decided what I needed to focus on the most and uh, used that kind of disappointment as motivation to, to work towards the next goal. And imagine how different your life would be if you'd made a different decision then. Was yeah. it really a close decision? 
Um, I think it was kind of one of those things where I pondered it for a minute and then, you know, had a good result at the end of that season. I was yeah. fourth in a Continental Cup in Finland, and um, that was kind of the deciding factor. It was like, you know what, I just took a month off from the sport, essentially, watching the Olympics, watching my teammates go to victory and supporting them as best as I could. And then, uh, you know, came out and I got a, a, you know, a good result here. Like, I was pretty happy about that. And I said, you know what, maybe if I just change some things, I can reach the next level. Maybe I can turn this fourth, fourth into a first or, you know, break through on the World Cup circuit. And, and that's what kind of was the motivating factor. It was within about 18, 18 months then when you won, won the King's Cup? Yeah. I mean, I came out that next season in 2011, and, and really my jumping was on par. I lost uh, about 15 pounds of upper body muscle mass um, and got more, I'd say, uh, physiologically um, uh, appropriated for ski jumping. And so that helped a lot, and then it also helped on my cross country a little bit. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite as fast, but I was also... Uh, able to ski a little bit better so that that helps and then then you know of course in competition when you see that hard work pay off it just is another motivating factor so in 2012 it was easy I mean I was jumping really well skiing really well kind of really a breakout year on world cup for me and it was funny because like we were talking about earlier just being in that flow state I went into the last competition where I won um with the mindset like well you know I didn't get the podium this year uh that I wanted but you know look I came really close I, I think I had like seven top tens that year or something it was just like on on a roll and I said you know what just get one more good result and we'll get it next year and I was kind of like in that state and then sure enough come away with a victory that day yeah what's when, when you look back on that day what went in the King's Cup what what do you remember um, I remember a couple of things. One, I had a little bit of luck on my side with the weather turning to kind of the hot thing where it was kind of deteriorating and causing the first or the second round to be canceled. That was one thing that came. But also the thing that stands out the most is I skied probably one of the best races in my career that day in terms of just tactically. Um, I went out, I skied well, I recognized the guys that I was skiing with, knew how to beat those guys and how to uh, kind of approach the situation and then um, how to hold off the charging group. And when I go back and watch the video footage of that race, I'm still like, where is that head today? How, uh, you know, I could use so much of that now. And um, that was one of the best tactical races I've ever skied in my career. And, uh, you know, what what were some of the decisions you made? Do you look back and you're like, Ooh, Smart, Brian. Um, Well, the first thing that I did was I decided that I was going to go out slow and use the guys that had jumped around me. Um, What what place did you jump into? I jumped to fourth place Okay, jumped to fourth place. Yeah, and there were – one guy jumped with about a minute lead on me or, like, on all of us, and then it was my – the second place, third place, and myself all together in about a 10-second spread of time. Um, and we were about a minute behind this leader. And uh, so I went out of the start and said, okay, I'm just going to sit on these two guys. They were, I mean, it was Tino Edelmann, one of the best Germans. And um, uh, in Norwegian, I think it was Goodman Storlian, was also there. And, and I knew those guys could ski when they were in shape. So I was like, I'll just wait, you know, conserve my energy behind them. We went out of the start and not 10 seconds had I been behind them where I was like, we're going too slow. And normally that is a death sentence for me because I'll go out, I'll ski too hard, blow up. Those guys will come back, you know, through me again and and lose. But to that day, I knew what I was doing and I and I took the pace. I upped it just a little and slowly, uh, kind of to my surprise, those guys dropped off one by one off my train. And then next thing I know, I was alone. And all of a sudden, I had uh, Kato was the Japanese guy who won the jumping that day in my sights and I said, you know what, I'm going for it. So I chased onto him and I was sitting there and and the whole time in my head I was uh, thinking about the chase group that was about, it started at 40 seconds back for me. And now it had Magnus Moen, it had Bill DeMong, it had Johnny Spillane, it had all the best, Miko Coxlian, all the best guys on the World Cup circuit and, and the, some of the fastest guys. So I knew that what I had to do was kind of discourage them from making that jump. So. I wanted to give away a few seconds in the first couple, first two laps, and then put a hard effort in on the third lap 
and gain back some of that time from them to kind of mentally discourage them. So when they hear their coaches going, oh, the gap's back to 30 seconds, they're like, oh, no, we're not going to get him. And I played it perfectly. I, I went from 40 seconds down to about 30 seconds on the third lap. I sped back up and uh, put about seven more seconds into them. So now they thought they were losing time. And then I caught Kato and just, you know, sat on him for a second and decided just to go for it. And uh, he, stu- he stayed with me on the fourth lap, but uh, in the final sprints, I was able to put, uh, put in a really good effort and go away and uh, timed it perfectly. Because coming over the last hill, I knew the chase group was 16 seconds behind me, just enough that they weren't going to get there. And uh, so I won. And uh, Miko uh, finished second, and he was two and a half seconds back. And so it was just like played it you know absolutely perfect were bill and johnny working for you at all back there were they trying to help what can, I, think, I guess i don't I know what they bill can do was trying to help as much as he could i think you know he was trying to set a pace that uh would actually slow those guys down a little bit as best yeah. as possible but it's hard i mean i know that magnus kept taking the lead and kept putting in hard charges and so it's funny because you know while he wasn't going to take the lead and try and ski away from it um he certainly wasn't going to let those guys ski away either so yeah he was kind of sitting there like you know waiting for his opportunity to go too and and he got it and i mean we were half a second away from having two americans on the podium that day. oh wow he, yeah he finished fourth so as uh, it was a cool experience to be in there and, and to hang on to it like that does it you mentioned you look back now and like wow why can't i do why can't you mentioned the mental part why can't yeah. why can't you do it like that again does the whole day seem like that to you like are you are you are you chasing that day almost? Not that chasing that sense? day. No, um, I've I've lived that day, and I think that it's kind of one of those things where I can look back on and reflect on, and and you know, kind of enjoy. But um, the sports changed. It's a different mentality now, and the tactics are different, and and the competitors are different. Um, they've matured. They've wisened up, and and there's young new guys that you always have to worry about. And so, I think nowadays I don't look at those days I'm, I'm focused on what I need to do to be ready for the next you know season and the next year after that I think it's a uh, important to you know learn from your experiences but also be open to new ones um, yeah. that that's what keeps you around in sport it's the tactics and stuff are that different from from 2012 yeah I mean the jumping's changed a lot like I said the margin of error has gotten there and then they changed the points last year from on a big hill 1.5 points per meter to 1.8 so we were racing uh, in 2012 with uh, essentially 50 guys uh, within two minutes or so. And, and last year we were having uh, about 60 guys within four minutes. And so it's, uh, it's a lot more spread out. Uh, it's a lot more demanding to reach the top of the sport. So you need to jump there first in order to be able to ski in contention. And I think that, uh, you know, the races themselves have also changed. They're a lot more tactical in terms of you get the lead group and you play games and you know you're hoping to sprint for the win um which is not my my uh favorite thing but uh that's what makes the sport exciting and that's what makes uh it interesting for a lot of people so um certainly that'll change too as some of the stronger skiers start jumping to the front more and often because then it'll you know the the pace will pick up they're going to play different tactics they're not going to wait for the sprint every time so that's the goal. Obviously, we want to change the sport like that. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly the last couple of years has been a little bit more uh, tactical on the race course and on the jump hill as well. Do you, is it, are you seeing the field evolve to, to these rules changes? Yeah. Um, everybody adapts. And, uh, unfortunately, it's the teams that have the best funding that are the quickest to adapt to those and find new ways to bend the rules or make them – you know, their suits or equipment as good as possible. What's the way to bend the rules? Um, well, for example, we do a, a crotch measurement where um, your suit has to measure the same as what your actual crotch inseam length would be. Um, but there's all kinds of ways that athletes will be able to pass that test, but then when they get on the jump, they can lower their crotch to make a bigger surface area to fly with. So, um, Or another thing is a couple of years ago, they realized that there was a discrepancy in how thick the soles of your boots could be so they obviously made their their soles as thick as possible and then when they put their straps on it lowers their crotch even more 
and they're still going to pass it because now they're instead of standing on a two centimeter thick heel, they're standing on a four centimeter thick heel. So little things like that where it's just reading the rules and finding out what is allowed and what is uh, not not necessarily not allowed, but what it doesn't say you cannot do, and that and that's like um, the important thing. So. There's always, and then like suits, every time they change the pattern or they change the fit of a suit to make it so that the rules are more fair, they essentially uh, make it more difficult for everybody to um, get as good and as high quality suits very quickly. Um, but when they leave the rules alone, the smaller nations and the less funded nations usually catch up to the bigger nations because there's only so many ways you can change or manipulate fabrics or suits or equipment, you know, and, and everybody learns and wisens up and catches on. Are there any changes going into this year? Anything? Yeah, this year uh, to prevent people from pulling their suits down um, and making their crotch lower, they made a, a band that will go around the midseam of your waist that is fixed. It's like a webbing strap. Um, it'll go in the thinnest part of your suit um, and it'll have to measure exactly what your suit ha is supposed to measure there. So as you can imagine, because it's fixed, when you try and pull it down, it's not going to go over your hip bone. So you can't pull the, the suit down as much anymore. Um, otherwise, the rules are pretty much about the same this year. Um, With, last year, they changed it so you had to measure your crotch and your height at the same time. So if you're going for the tallest measurement, you're taking away from your crotch measurement and vice versa. It sounds kind of weird. I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. That yeah. <laughs> oh, it's trust me. Uh, in the jumping world, when we tell you that suit colors matter, most people are like, "You're crazy." But it it actually does because the way they sew the the material together changes the speed of the material, the way it flies through the air. And um, wait, suit color matters? Yeah. Yeah. We we don't pick our our jumping suits based off of like what colors we think are going to be cool. We pick them off of like which color is testing the best in air permeability, which color uh, you know, feels the best, and is it fast or is it slow, is it you know, gonna be a nice it's, color? It's the exact same fabric, just different colors, and that, yep. and how it, can that even, possibly make a difference? Because it's the way the nap of the fabric comes together um, and the way the air flows over that material changes the speed of the suit in the air. It could be, you know, some of them are very fast colors, some of them are very slow, and so it's, you know, a lot of times you have, you'll see jumpers with combinations of colors because they're trying to mimic airplane trips, strips, or whatever else, trying to make the most effective suit possible, or maybe they want slower colors for one reason or another, but um, yeah, it, and, it, and even roll to roll of the same color, sometimes it's different, you know, um, and that's why you see so many nations on the World Cup circuit with one color versus another because they're they're sitting there going, this color is jumping really well, so everybody, every nation buys that color that year, and then the next year it's not working as well. There's some new color that's working better, so it's always changing. Okay, I'm sorry to beat a dead horse here, but yeah. <laughs> I don't understand, so, but <laughs> I may have to edit this a little bit because yeah. I'm going to sound like a moron. That's easy to do, I think, when you're talking about equipment, even jumpers like I sound like an idiot. They're gonna think I'm crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you get a you get a big roll of you know you go down to to John's jumping <laughs> jumping suit fabric store and you get a big roll of fabric and you unroll it and and I can see why each fabric would make a difference and even even maybe why one roll compared to the next roll which are supposed to be the exact same thing maybe came out a little different. One's better than the other, but I just can't fathom how. If they're from the same factory, they're the exact same fabric. What difference does it make if it's red or white? It's just a, it's a very old technology that the jumping suits are made out of. Um, it's actually seven layers of material that are glued together. And, and the way they're glued, to, it's like foam um, and then like a backing sheet and another layer of foam and then a topping sheet. And there's a thin membrane that goes through uh, between the two layers of foam. And that's actually what controls the air permeability. So the foam is actually, you know, lets some air in, but they put a, a membrane layer between the two layers of foam and that's, it has like small circular holes in it. And that's what allows air to go through it. Um, and depending on the size of those holes, or if there isn't holes, it would pass zero air. But if they're, you know, a little bit bigger, they pass, you know, our limits 40 liters of air through the material. Um, 
So what happens is in the in the process when they're making it, it's all torched onto this material, and depending on how long it spends underneath the flame or how long it or how fast it goes through it, the the burn pattern on the material when it goes through changes the you know more singed is generally faster fabric or less singed is generally okay. a slower fabric, um, but they can never precisely duplicate it. They can mimic it. And to most people's eyes, it wouldn't, you wouldn't notice the difference. But um, to a train jumper or to a, you know, a guy who deals with the equipment control, um, they'll notice the difference immediately. Um, and especially the jumpers when they're jumping in the material, they'll notice the difference. Huh. And here I saw you were in a, a stunning pink number yeah. this week. Yeah, is, yeah. That, is that a good jumping? Good it's color actually for you? a good, good suit. That was my second best suit last year, which is now a good training suit. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a bright pinkish red suit with white arms and I just you know literally wrote the company and said Ben send me the best suit that you uh you know you have best material make it I don't care what color I mean the last couple years I've been jumping in purple so obviously not my favorite color but hey it's been good hey there's something wrong with purple yeah no right (laughs) but I can't complain so yeah um wait one one back one more thing I wanted to ask you about about kind of this whole thread um you're talking about like the extra height in the boots. Mm-hmm. Have they changed that? Uh, no, that rule is still around. Um, so you can kind of fudge that way and have yeah have yeah, these I mean, bigger they, boots. Yeah, you could do that. You can have uh, bigger boots, and um, so it's it's a challenge, and it's uh, something that you, I mean, you could spend all day manipulating your equipment. But the thing we know, and the thing that's most important, is that. By far and out, fundamentally, the best thing that you can do is focus on the process, the technical aspects of the sport. If you can do those right, then only and then and only then will the equipment modifications really help you. Yeah, um, sure, sure, sure. But the the cheating part is interesting, or the bending yeah, the rules yeah. is interesting. Well, I mean, it's just uh, <laughs> it's just the way it is. I mean, if you look at any sport, there. Yeah. If you can get an edge somehow, you got to do it. So do you? I mean, so. How did, how did you notice that this was a loophole? Did you guys catch on to it as being a loophole in the rules, or did you see notice the Germans showing up in no, I these think enormous uh, boots? I think it's always the U.S. is always paying a little bit of catch-up because we're so far removed from the situation. Um, and, like, Germany has a whole technical institute that will look at the way a jumper jumps and decide, okay, we need to change his boots so they're stiffer on the outside or whatever. And they'll go and make the material whatever it is, and, and they'll give that jumper what he needs. Um, and then, you know, other guys will catch on to that, and they'll do the same thing. And so I wouldn't necessarily call it cheating. I would just say they're looking at the rules, and they're saying, well, it doesn't explicitly say we cannot do that. Therefore, we'll give it a shot. And, and generally, everybody catches on pretty quickly. They do it. It takes some time performance-wise to adapt to these technical changes. And then what ends up happening is they'll decide if it's an okay change or if it's a safety risk or whatever else, and then FIS will take the appropriate action to say, okay, that's against the rules or you specifically cannot do that. Um, Whatever those steps are necessary to keep it fair. Um, But as with anything, we're dealing with sport with a lot of variables, and every time you can eliminate a variable, um, that's to your advantage. So that's what everybody's trying to do. So when you go to the first event this year, in, uh, and, and you're, you're there for the crotch measuring ceremony, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, are you going to be, I mean, are you looking around at what these other guys are, are you looking around to seeing where maybe the Germans or the Austrians might have found something else to exploit? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that's a natural part of the sport. I mean, you look at it, but you're also, I mean, some of it's for show. I mean, we, going into uh, other competitions, we've, put on like new bindings over a different color just to you know mess with people's heads or you know we'll have a coach carry your skis up or something just weird because then they're gonna be like oh well what wait what's going on you know yeah so some of it's a lot of psychological side of the sport and and germany is certainly very good at that um you know where they'll just play that card they know they have that card in their back pocket and they can play it and, and they'll get guys to bite all the time and certainly we've been guilty of it too where we're like, oh my God, did you see his boots? Or did you see his suit? Oh my God, they can't be legal at all. And then they show up in the competition and they're in the same exact equipment that you are. Or yeah. they're, <laughs> whatever they're doing has no effect on their jumping whatsoever. 
but it's flashy and makes everybody take notice and distracts them from their own performance. I'm sure there's a bit of confidence in it too. Maybe adding a centimeter to your boots maybe really doesn't make that much of a difference, but you, you probably feel like, yeah. like ooh, I got for something some that people, these guys for all sure. don't have. Yeah. yeah. And, and it goes the other way too. Like sometimes I perform the best when I don't have all the, the right things in place. Um, yeah. Where I know that I'm going to have to try a little bit harder than those other guys and I don't care about it. But if you look at the overall World Cup winner for ski jumping last year, he was jumping on bindings that are like the technology's two or three years old, nothing special for suits, nothing special for boots, and the same skis. And so, and Ed, but by far and out, he was jumping technically the best all year long and, you know, was rock solid mentally all year long. And that's why he was the best last season. And, and it didn't really have anything to do with his equipment. And there were other athletes certainly that were bending the rules and, and had way better equipment than probably he did. But he had that confidence card, like, I'm skiing well, I know what I'm doing, yeah. and I know this is what I need to do. One one more time on the boots. So so do you, was there a specific time where you guys noticed that the, the Germans were wearing these absurdly large boots? Actually, it started with Norway. Going Norway, into, okay. Yeah, in the in 2014 Olympics, right before that, they, they were the ones who picked up that the rule, the rule is actually that, the jumping manufacturers make a standard jump boot with, I think it's two centimeters of uh, like slope where the heel rises up two centimeters. And that's natural. We need that, that extra heel height for jumping because we're jumping forward and not necessarily up yeah. all the time. Um, they noticed that the rule said that it could actually be a maximum of 45 millimeters. And most people look at that and go, oh, well, the soles of the boot must be already 45 millimeters. Um, it wasn't until they probably took a tape measure out and said, wait, we're only at 25 millimeters, so we could go up another two centimeters. And um, that's what they did. So they raised the heel height on their boot and then took it away from their ski because the whole system, your heel block on the ski and your heel on your boot can only be a maximum of seven centimeters. So um, they just realized that there was a little bit of play in that and that they could mess with it. And they said, well, this will help us with our suits and you know won't affect our jumping at all and that's what they did so they rolled those out going into the the olympics in 2014 and they had a good olympics they had a great olympics yeah, yeah. um did you notice right away did you notice wait there's something different about that guy's shoes oh yeah i mean instantly you're like why is there so much white on the bottom of his boots and then you realize like oh well he has two soles on there that's weird um and you know of course everybody complained about it and everybody was like that's not fair that's cheating whatever else but it's not cheating i mean it's just not yeah that's the way they look at it they look at it as uh well it doesn't it, it you know it's doesn't say that we can't do it um and that's the battle that we've been fighting in the sport a little bit it's just what they're doing um and certainly it's all in regards to equipment and you know and nothing else but that's uh, that's the way it is do you have have you adopted the larger boots no i have not no no, I... I, uh, I heard it's helpful. It can be, but it also can be a trouble. I mean, there was a lot of athletes that last year they ordered these huge, you know, sold boots and couldn't get in an in-run position to save their life, and it didn't work out for them. I mean, it's a calculated risk that you have to take, and um, so I think it's important to... It just goes to show that not everything's going to help you, and, and again, the technical side of it is more important than jumping you know, performance is more important. So um, it's like the, yeah, may make one meter difference in the overall grand scheme of things. And if you're fighting for the win every day, that's a big difference. But if you're fighting for 10th place or whatever, you have enough meters that you can gain just by jumping better physically, that it doesn't really make a difference. So for me, I know uh, it would more be a distraction than anything else. What are you fighting for right now? I'm fighting to get back on the podium. I think that uh, it starts with a good jumping performance. It starts with getting back to a stable and consistent routine on the jump hill, and um, that's that's what I want to fight for this year. When's when was your last time on the podium? Uh, Let's see, it was 2013 at the World Championships was my last time on the podium. Um, I've been close. I I last 2015 I had seven top tens including the fifth at world championships last year i had two top tens um and i've been in the top 20 in the world ranking list uh since 2012 so um i'm close but it's just 
haven't been able to put it together. Yeah, and we, we talked about this a little bit, and you seem to appreciate your lot in life. And yeah. uh, um, can you do it? Can you get there to that? Can you get back on the podium? Yeah, I certainly think that I can. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that I can. You know, the next two years would be more hassle than it's worth if you don't think you can get there. Um, so believing in yourself to get there is important, and, and that I do believe in myself that I will get back to the top, and um, I, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Hey, we're, we're, we're at an hour here, but I wanted to uh, real quick talk about CC Thrive yeah. again one more time. We talked about it a little earlier this summer when you won a big award from USSA, mm-hmm. the, the United States Ski and Snowboard Association. And I just thought it was a fascinating topic. And yeah. uh, how is CC Thrive coming this summer? CC Thrive is coming great this summer. And uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, um, CC Thrive stands for Thriving After Childhood Cancer. And uh, you know, myself, I'm a survivor. Uh, I was diagnosed with ALL leukemia in 1990, and um, it's always been a, an interesting part of my life and always something that I've been very grateful for um, being able to overcome and, and look back on as a positive experience. But, um, you know, when I, when I got a little older, I wanted to give back to that community that gave me so much. So I started volunteering at organizations, doing that kind of stuff. But uh, after it all, I realized that there's not a lot of success stories out there. Certainly there's, um, we use a t- statistic that uh, 15,000 kids are diagnosed every year and about 13,000 of them are surviving. And uh, when I look at who's out there, when I research stories on the internet, they're very hard to come by, the success stories. And certainly they're people, out there. People get over it and who yeah, do and get over it and go on with their lives. Great, great lives. And, um, but the kids that are going through it now, their parents are, you know, a wreck. They don't know what's going to happen to their kid. The kids don't know what's going to happen. Um, so what we decided to do with CC Thrive is start an organization that captures those success stories um, and certainly the high-profile ones and shares them so that kids who are going through it, they can look at the organization and go, holy cow, that kid had the, you know, I'll use my example. He had leukemia, same age as I did, and look, he's an Olympian. Or um, we have another ambassador uh, who's actually – 14 now and he's uh, just made the junior national luge team or um, we have Melinda Marciano who's a, a, a professional dancer and a choreographer and an award-winning author for her whole story and um, those are just some examples of really high-profile success um, that are you know key to help keep that optimism keep that passion alive for the kids that are going through today so we are currently rolling out that program we have materials in hospitals and and also on our website at www.ccthrive.org and then also um, we're going to eventually roll out a mentor program and a uh, you know that will kind of help guide these kids and, and be a sounding board for them where they can bounce ideas off of the ambassadors and and help them with questions along their way what's the what's what's the long-term goal for that i guess maybe you just told me to some degree but so yeah, to some degree, I think it would be an organization that really uh, focuses on the quality of life after cancer. I think there's so many organizations out there that are doing an amazing job with patient care and research now. But um, when you look at the big picture, it's not just about you know the treatment; it's about everything, the whole process going through it from diagnosis to survivorship and beyond. And uh, we're trying to kind of pick up the next uh, phase of that um, where these other organizations are kind of leaving off. I mean, they're, they they got to focus on the next patient. And mm-hmm. um, we want to pick those kids up and uh, restore their, their passion, their spirit, their drive to be successful. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, limit the, the excuse of, oh, I had cancer. Um, certainly there's a number of things you can do uh, in life where, um, and you may be physically disabled or mentally disabled because of it, but you can still reach a very high level, and, and that's what we're trying to capture and help people achieve. Is the is is the end goal like a, a pamphlet where someone can flip through and read a story about you or someone else or a website where they can go to and see these success stories, or or is it, I mean, camps and stuff that, that get these kids involved? And... Um, I think the end goal is always going to be evolving. Um, right now it's, it's to be able to support um, the the rehab of these these individuals and and kind of establish more success stories um, as we go through it and uh, funding is a big goal now so that we can help these kids you know with 
any unexpected costs or whatever we can do. I think that's crucial. But um, for now, it's just getting the awareness out there. Um, we want to have uh, the eyes and these kids knowing that they can go on to something else, that they can do it. And, um, you know, rolling out that program is what our, our biggest key is now. And then long term, you know, as we evolve, it'll be hospital visits. It'll be, you know, working with not only the kids, but their parents, too, where, you know, because that's a lot of the big uh, picture yeah. for the kids mentality is where what their parents views are so working with them helping them understand what they need to do and um, yeah hopefully we can make a difference yeah well uh, it sounds like an awesome program where can how can people help um, go to www.ccthrive.org um, you can contact us there you can donate there um, and then yeah certainly reach out and uh, you know anytime we have uh, opportunities to volunteer we would you know always take on volunteers so yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that's all I got. Awesome. Well, I, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for sitting down with me. This, yeah. was, this was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I think you're bullshitting me about the colors thing. I'm not. Absolutely <laughs> not. You'll see. Go ask any ski jumper. All right. All right. Well, hey, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks to binsounds.com for the music. Thanks to Brian for the time. And thanks to everyone at the Steamboat Pilot today for the support. Swing over to steamboattoday.com and check out what's going on in the city. We'll be back in two weeks.